Hello and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton, along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Massick. Hello, Jason. Let me tell you something, amigo. I'm going to bag masters and I don't give a shit how I do it. That's right, listeners. Today we'll be discussing with spoilers of plenty the 1985 crime thriller To Live and Die in L.A. starring William Peterson, Willem Dafoe, and John Pankow. Directed by William Freakin, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 56 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Academy Award-winning director William Friedkin, The Exorcist, The French Connection, brings the box office smash To Live and Die in L.A. to the screen with gripping power. Starring screen veterans Dean Stockwell, Willem Dafoe, and William Peterson, To Live and Die in L.A. is the widely acclaimed, exhilarating crime-action-adventure of a U.S. Secret Service agent tracking his partner's killer through the underside of Los Angeles. Richard Chance, William Peterson, a daring and reckless member of the Secret Service, heads up the fraud division, dealing with counterfeit currency. Eric Masters, William Defoe, is the master at creating his own cash and on the most wanted list for the brutal murder of Chance's longtime partner. The line between cop and criminal is drawn. The chase begins. From the trendy elegance of Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills to the seedy neon glow of Hollywood... Chance and Masters waver on both sides of the law in a cat-and-mouse thriller that sets a heart-pounding pace. A federal agent is dead. A killer is loose. And the City of Angels is about to explode. The director of the French Connection is back on the street again. To live and die in L.A. There we go. To live and die in L.A. So that was what's on the box. Hey, Jason, how are we doing today? Oh, dude, I'm excited to talk about this one, man. Excellent. Let's get into some gritty, gritty cop drama. The underbelly of Los Angeles, the very the city of angels where we, we exist, oh, where yeah. we reside. This movie happened in our backyard. Yes. I wasn't living in the backyard when it happened at the time. <laughs> I, I am here now. I think if I had seen that movie thinking about moving out here at the time, I might have changed my mind. Oh, no doubt about it. Jeez. Right? But then again, I moved to Florida because of Miami Vice. So what does that say about me? Oh, yeah. See, that's yeah, that's why I went to that school, too. Yeah, good point. All right. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, move on to our earliest memories. What are some of our earliest memories about To Live and Die in L.A.? Jason, as always, start us off. Absolutely, man. Well, I don't have much in the way of early memories. I mean, I don't believe I saw this until my college years, probably on cable. And I do remember William Peterson in the lead role and John Pankow, who plays his partner in the film. And then, of course, Willem Dafoe being one bad mother effer in this movie. That is definitely an early memory. I remember the setting, Bill Bant, speaking of which, in Los Angeles, that being a darker, grittier version of L.A., the sunsets, the smog, just the look and the feel I do remember this film being hardcore violent, maybe even on the verge of upsetting, upsettingly violent. I recall an unexpected character death, and I do vaguely remember money being involved in the story. <laughs> like so vague. I'm totally being vague, but that was my memory. Like, is th I think this, this has something to do with money. 
And that's about it, Bill Band. I really don't have any other memories associated with this film. How about you? Yeah, um, like you, I did not see this until uh, college. So what happened was freshman year of college, because growing up, we were kind of poor middle class, but I was able to go to UM and my parents are like, once you go to school, we're not flying you home. You're stuck out there. Sorry, we can't do it. But after my freshman year, my parents decided they were going to fly me back for spring break because I didn't have any money to do anything anyway. So I came home and, of course, all my friends from school, because they were at different schools, their spring breaks were at different times. So there's nobody around. So I rented 25 movies in five days, and To Live and Die in L.A. was one of those movies. Outstanding. All these 80s movies that I just missed, the, the ones that you kind of bypassed at the video store, you'd pick it up and go, oh. Yeah. Then, you know, someone would come in with some movies, and they'd have the new release you wanted, so you'd grab that. But yeah, it was movies like uh, Black Moon Rising, uh, The Wraith, Adventures of Buckaroo Baisai. It was all those kind of movies that I was watching all all week long. But the problem is all these movies became a blur because they all just, you know, because you're just doing one after another. So my earliest sure. memories of this movie was I remember that Wang Chung had done the title song for this. And I remember Wang Chung was kind of big for like a three year stretch there in the, in the mid 80s. Sure. Absolutely. But then, 100%. of course, going back to watch this, I didn't realize Wang Chung scored the movie. That was kind of a surprise to me. And they did. Yeah. Um, an additional song, and then when you watch the movie, you hear their, one of their big hits, Dance Hall Days, in it. Wang Chung was a big influence on this movie, which is kind of funny. No question. No question. Um, I remember more recent when CSI came out, which starred William Peterson. I was like, oh, I need to go back and watch To Live and Die in L.A. I haven't seen that movie forever. We discussed Manhunter in a previous show. We both loved it. And his character kind of mirrors from what I had remembered, kind of mirrored this uh, character a little bit. So I was like, okay. It almost felt like it could be a sequel, in my mind, until I went back and watched it. And then I certainly remember the big car chase. There's a big car chase scene in this movie. Oh, yeah. But going back and watching it, I was totally wrong about what had happened. I thought our heroes, and I'm doing little air quotes, heroes, were the ones doing the chasing, the ones being chased. So that was kind of a surprise. That's understandable. What's funny, too, because you mentioned your earliest memories about the surprise death. I totally forgot about that. Oh, no kidding. That was an oh shit moment for me watching this. And there yeah. was lots of oh shit moments going back and watching this because it's been it's been almost 30 years. So it was it was good to go back. This was a fun watch. So that's uh, some of my earliest memories of To Live and Die in L.A. That was a great, Matt. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing, Bill Bant. And I totally agree. It was a great rewatch. This one, I had a lot of fun breaking down i had a little extra time so i kind of went through this one twice this movie is definitely up my alley and it was fun so we can get right into our initial thoughts about this rewatch what we thought of this movie today are you ready bill bant go for it first and foremost great badass title i love the title to live and die in la i mean like come on as if you say like if you're a cop in L.A., this is what it's like. I mean, like, this is what it's going to be. And that was the title, if I'm not mistaken, of the book that this is based on, which I did not know that this was based on. A book. I didn't either until doing the research for this. So there you go. As always, I'd like to start with a couple of our stars who play the protagonists and or antagonists in this film. And we have the great William Peterson, who you've just brought up of CSI 
fame, CSI Vegas fame. He plays our protagonist, Secret Service agent Richard Chance. Now, I've always been a fan of William Peterson. And here's, yeah, this is where I usually do a little segment called Where Were They At? And then, of course, this is Where Were They At? 1985, when this movie came out. And Peterson had a handful of projects in the 80s. I don't need to list them all here, except to mention that previous to this film, he had the role of Cats and Jammer Bartender in the film Thief in 1981, R.I.P. James Kahn. And I assume that's where he probably met Michael Mann. And of course, they would end up working together again on Manhunter in 1986. Honestly, I only know William Peterson from this film, Live and Die in L.A., then the aforementioned Manhunter, and CSI. That's really it. And that's enough. I love him. He's always been likable. Believable dramatic actor with gravitas, great presence. He commands the screen, but he also has this great like sensitivity in his face, which I appreciate. Then we have Willem Dafoe as our main antagonist, as Eric Rick Masters, the professional independent counterfeiter. Bill Bent, super young in this. Oh, I know. He I, Let's just say he looks super young because he's around 30 years old when they shot this. But he looks, if you told me he was in his early to mid 20s i totally i would buy it too it was kind of jarring seeing him that young and you get like super close-ups on his face and he's just got that clean almost what's the uh word um pristine like complexion but it's like almost uh like a one of those ceramic dolls yeah it's like what is your skincare regimen i need to know that yeah no kidding it's pretty impressive so in the 80s, obviously, he's got a great filmography. Before this, he was in a film called The Loveless. Uh, then he did Streets of Fire, Roadhouse 66. He has this movie, but then, of course, the most notable role as Sergeant Elias in Platoon in 1986, where he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. But Bill Bant, he goes on to play Jesus, Jesus Christ, and The Last Temptation of Christ in 1988. He's also in Mississippi Burning and rounds out the 80s with the role of Charlie in Born on the 4th of July, 1989. I mean, what can you say about Willem Dafoe? I'm surprised he's only been nominated for an Oscar four times. Hasn't won. Uh, Recently, he's been excellent as the Green Goblin in the Spider-Man franchise. I just think he's great in this, man. Memorable as a creepy, crazed, unpredictable bad guy prone to violence, painting, and pyromania. He just does so much with his face. He's got that weird, great smile. Very unpredictable, which is why I appreciate him. Hey, man, here's an initial thought. Speaking of actors, Darlene Flugel, who plays Ruth, William Peterson's like covert informant and lover, is super hot. Oh, yeah. I didn't remember that for some reason, but I'll never forget it now after rewatching this. She's beautiful, as well as Deborah Fuhrer, who plays Bianca, who's Defoe's lover and model and co-conspirator slash criminal. She's also beautiful, but in a much darker way. Love the ladies in this movie. And let's just get it out of the way. Right now, Bill Bant, this film has some solid nudity. Oh, yeah. Plenty of what, Bill Bant? What what, what, what's, what do they have plenty of We see of some in this butt movie? cheeks. Yes! And we see some junk, man. I'm surprised. Hey, we get a nice cameo from William Peterson's penis. I was surprised by that. That was an oh shit moment. Because you just don't see... I should have put that in my earliest memories. I did remember that. I knew that he was full frontal in this. Yeah. I, I totally forgot about that. And I, I was just kind of like, why, why, <laughs> but why, did, why does the MPAA have such a problem with it? What's the big deal? I mean, we, you like know, every other 80s movies we right. watch will have naked women in it. You're, you're, you're damn right. What's the big deal? You see a guy's penis. I'll break it down real quick right now. It's not in my favorite scenes, but it's done with class. It's shot with class. 
woman who plays Ruth, uh, Darlene, she is beautiful. And it's not as if it's this graphic, pornographic sequence. No. It's actually quite sexy and romantic. you got two beautiful people getting ready. They get naked and they're getting ready to make love. And it's pretty damn sexy. Anyway, moving on. Uh, yeah, initial thought. The violence in this is hardcore, man. And spoiler alert, we get some hardcore shotgun blasts to the face. Yes. The forehead in particular. Oof. If you get shot in this movie, you get shot in the face. That's basically what happens. Oh, yeah. And they're going to show it. Yep. And to their credit, it looks believable. Like It's well done, in my humble opinion. To go back to the cast real quick, I'm just going to say yay for John Turturro. Oh, yeah. Yay. Always yay. Right? Oh, yes. You can't go wrong with JT. Yeah. I mean, he plays such a great supporting antagonist uh, in this film as Carl Cody, the money mule for Rick Masters. He perfects the scumbag role. You never feel like you can trust him ever, but because of his face, he just has that sympathetic look, and he plays that so well. He's a character you love to hate, but you end up still loving. So it's John Turturro. He's a genius. I'm going to jump ahead to the complaints department, Bill Bant. Uh Uh-oh. I'm going to file a complaint against myself. Apparently, I'm an ignorant idiot. Bill Bant, were you aware that the United States Secret Service has a dual mission, as in like a dual mandate? Here we go. From Wikipedia, the United States Secret Service is a federal law enforcement agency under the Department of Homeland Security charged with conducting criminal investigations and protecting U.S. political leaders. Until 2003, the Secret Service was part of the Department of the Treasury as the agency was founded in 1865, just after the Civil War, to combat the then widespread counterfeiting of U.S. currency. Bill, Bant, I wasn't aware of that. The only reason I know that is because of Jack Reacher. Because his brother See, there in go. the books worked for Secret Service, so that was his job. That's the only reason I knew. Yeah. All this time, I was just like, oh, yeah, the Secret Service, they protect the president and other leaders here, stateside, what, whatnot. But I was like, oh, they do a lot more than that. I'm a moron. I don't know why I never knew that. You know, I'll get into it later, but I got confused at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> 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 Glad I did this research. Here we go. To round this out, Bill Bant, how do I feel about this movie today? Hey, man, this movie is weird and wild, and it makes me feel dirty. Critically, I feel at times this movie tries a little too hard or doesn't try enough. It's weird. It's either intentionally or unintentionally leaving things ambiguous. But in the end, I can't escape the notion that is emulating a Michael Mann production called Miami Vice. But listen, I still like this movie because I'm drawn to the darker cop dramas I always preferred the darker side of Miami Vice. You know, what undercover cops are dealing with, cops walking a fine line between good and evil, existing in a gray world where the lines are always blurred. But watching this film now, one, I wish it had a different soundtrack. I'm sorry. Apologies to Wang Chung. I agree. Didn't care for the music in this movie. I thought it was awful. I thought it was god-awful. If this movie had a different soundtrack, ugh, makes me a little frustrated. Number two, I wish the character development was a little more defined. Number three, it's kind of clunky in its editing and storytelling. Number four, this movie has some kick-ass solid action, bold violence, and it has a starkness to it. The way it shoots L.A. or looks at L.A., frames L.A., I love it. So I definitely like what it's trying to be. And it does a great job of raising the stakes throughout as circumstances get worse for our protagonists in this movie. I love the intensity. And that great kill near the end. I just wish or would have preferred they did without putting on an artsy affectation that makes me think of Miami Vice. That's all. How about your initial thoughts on this 1985 classic? 
Yeah. So my initial thoughts, I totally agree with you. And through the, uh, the Miami Vice thing, I felt like it was West Coast Miami Vice a little bit. It had some moments. I'm like, oh, this shot or this scene straight out of Miami Vice. I totally agree with you on that. John Turturro, seeing him in the credits, that was another oh shit moment. I always put Turturro more in the 90s than the 80s. And I know he has a body of work sure. in the 80s. It was a pleasant surprise to see him in it. And he certainly kicked ass. And I'll talk about it more in some of my favorite scenes. The film is about these two Secret Service agents who are going to great lengths to capture this counterfeiter. Masters, played by Willem Dafoe. Right. It's amazing how, by the end of the movie, they're they're almost worse than the person they're going after. This movie gets yeah, dark. Yeah, it does. It's like, what's the line that you're willing to cross in order to complete your job? And part of the problem is, because Chance's partner was killed, trope alert, uh, surprise, surprise, he only had three days left on the job. So, yeah, like you said, he right. goes way, way dark. And I'm like, you're worse now than the person that you're going after. What does that make you? So I thought that was kind of interesting. John Pankow, who plays Agent John Vukovic. Vukovic. Yeah, I kept saying to myself, I'm like, why do I know that name? Where have I heard that name before? And it came to me. There used to be a player in the 1980 World Series winning Phillies. John Vukovic, who was the infielder, ended up coaching the team. No yeah. way. It was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I remember him. Yeah, he ended up coaching the team for a while. He was a bench coach. Um, he unfortunately died a couple of years ago. He had a brain tumor. Guy was only 59 years old. Oh, man. Yeah, William Defoe's character, Masters, you kind of mentioned this. This guy has brass balls in this movie. I mean, he starts the movie by shooting Chance's partner. He didn't need to. He yeah. was already dead to rights at that point. Yeah, he'd taken two shotgun blasts to the chest before Defoe puts one right in his forehead. Sorry, go on. And then he goes to the prison to visit Cody, John Turturro. I'm like, damn, that's ballsy showing up there. You're wanted criminal. Everybody knows that you're the counterfeiter. They just can't put two and two together yet to bust you. Ballsy. Yeah. Then he goes to Waxman's office and tells Waxman, hey, there's cops out here staking you out. But he walks in anyway to get what he needs. Damn, dude, you got balls. And then he goes to Jeff Rice's house because he wants his money back because Jeff screwed up the hit on Cody. Yep. All true. And Rice is twice his size. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, no way. Yeah. No way. I'd just be like, all right, dude, you blew it the first time. Better do it this time or else I'll get someone to kick your ass. I'm not doing it myself. So I was I was impressed with that. I was like, damn, that guy's got brass balls. I love it. Yeah. Quick shout out to, is it Steve James that plays Jeff Rice in this movie? Yeah. He's great. Anyway, please continue. But like I said, there's a ton of oh shit moments for me watching this. And I've already gone over a couple of them. I'm sure I'll go over a couple more as we keep going on. And the other thing was, yeah, we both agree this. It's got a lot of Miami Vice influence in it. But I would have loved to have seen this as a show where the whole season was really about trying to track down masters and other counterfeiters in the area. That would have been cool. I, I kind of wish they would bring this property back or this IP back somehow. I was kind of mad at myself watching this going, why did it take me so long to watch this movie again? I was really digging it. I was really having a good time with it. Glad we picked to do this because I bought this movie five years ago. I found it at Big Lots for $5. And it was literally still in the wrapper when I opened it to watch this. And now you can't find it anywhere. Crazy. It's not on streaming yeah. currently right now. You know, we're going we're gonna to be talking this movie up and all our listeners are going to be like, shit, I can't watch it. Damn it. So hopefully it comes out on the streaming service too. Or if you can pick up, find a copy of it somewhere. This was a good one. It'll be interesting once we get to the final piece of this podcast with our rating 
see. We'll see. All right, so let's move on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from To Live and Die in L.A.? Well, I am going to start with this particular scene, which I call the airport chase. It's not an extremely long scene, but I watched it twice, and I loved it both times. I love the kinetic energy within this scene, and I'm thinking to myself, William Peterson must have been an athlete. He's sprightly, man. He's jumping around. He's hauling ass in this scene. Chasing uh, John Turturro all over the place. So at this point in the film, we have Secret Service agents Richard Chance and John Vukovic, who are new partners, and they're tracking Carl Cody, played by John Turturro, who is Rick Masters' money mule. And he is currently in the story at the airport, about to get on a flight, and he passes some cash to the ticket agent, And John Vukovic goes over to the counter after Totoro leaves and asks to examine the cash that the agent had just received to examine the cash to make sure it's counterfeit, because obviously Chance and Vukovic are there to nab Cody. Once Vukovic confirms the fact that the cash is counterfeit, does the old pencil uh, test, the eraser, meanwhile, Chance has got his eyes on Cody, who's gone through security and is getting further and further away. Again, Vukovic confirms that the bill is counterfeit, and Chance takes that signal and literally runs with it. So he chases Cody through the airport, because Cody catches on pretty quick, as Chance goes right through the metal detector, flashes his badge. But man, I love the speed at which William Peterson is running. He is not holding back as an actor. Yeah, so he hauls ass through the metal detector, and then they have, uh, I'm not sure, I'm trying to figure out where this was shot at LAX. If it was LAX, I'm not sure. I didn't see it in the research. But there's a long, one of those walking people movers. And we see Cody running through all these people. Get out of the way. And he's shoving people aside as he's carrying a briefcase, by the way, of $40,000, which I believe is also counterfeit bills. Regardless, he's dr- bumping people all the way. Peterson doesn't bother going through the people on the walk, that moving walkway, he just jumps up on one of those dividers and runs on top of the divider all the way down the walkway chasing him. This is where I'm talking about how athletic he is. I mean, he just jumps right up on it and he's going full out sprint. And then Cody thinks he's being crafty and he ducks off to the side. Chance runs by him and goes and sees that, oh, he's not here at the gate, turns around, then proceeds to jump over some seats right there at the gate and looks into a hallway that leads down to restrooms, figures that Cody's gone into there, and Peterson hauls ass into the bathrooms. It's kind of funny. He goes into the women's bathroom first. He's just checking all places for him, and then goes into the men's bathroom and kicks open the door of a stall who's, (laughs) there's some innocent dude sitting on the toilet, and then he looks under the second stall and sees a shadow hovering and knows, ah, Cody's got to be in there. And he kicks open the door, and then Cody comes rushing out with the briefcase, slams into him, and immediately Peterson fires off around in the bathroom that echoes, and Cody immediately stops. Then Peterson approaches Cody. Here's where I love the way this scene is directed and choreographed. There's so much energy in it, where Peterson approaches Cody. This is Turturro with a briefcase. He's not like a super a tough guy, athletic guy, but he starts pushing the briefcase into Peterson. Peterson throws him up against the wall. He's sweating, grabs his hands, puts him behind uh, Cody's back. And then all of a sudden, a uniformed police officer comes busting into the restroom and goes, freeze! He's got his weapon drawn. 
And Peterson's got to turn around. This is, I love William Peterson in the scene. He's got to turn around, presses back up against Turturro, keep pressing him up against the wall while he has his badge out, yelling at the uniform police officer going, I'm a secret service agent. I'm a federal agent. Then on top of this, Vukovic finally shows up, has his weapon drawn on the uniform police officer and goes, Secret Service, and the police officer's like, who are you? What's going on? And all the meanwhile, there's an innocent bystander that's walking to the restroom, and there's these three cops and a bad guy in this bathroom, and there's guns drawn everywhere, and the innocent bystander's just sta- standing there saying, uh, I just came in to take a leak, and then turns around and walks away. I love the scene. I just love the energy of it. I was impressed with the way it's shot, the camera movement that's tracking Peterson as he's running through the airport and his speed, the speed of it. It didn't feel slow at all. It was just really fast paced. And then the action that occurs inside the bathroom was high, high intensity. And the actors are giving it their all. And it's just kind of bang, bang, bang. Love that scene. Great call. I did not have that on my list, but you're right. It's yeah, it's fun, fast, and kinetic. That's 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 all I could just sum it up. So good call on that one. I'm gonna start with a moment. Yeah. Just because the laughs are few and far between in this movie, I picked this out. For some reason, I can't remember why this happened, but we have Chance and Vukovic, and they're looking for counterfeiters. So they find these two counterfeiters in front of a building, and they go running after them, and the two guys run off, and they split. Yes. And Vukovic is running after this one guy, and the guy turns and says, Why are you chasing me? And Vukovic goes, Why are you running? And the guy goes, because you're chasing me. And I was like, it's an honest answer to a question. That just made me laugh out loud. I just thought that was just great. It's a good moment. What's funny, though, is if you watch the trailer, the trailer has that same dialogue, but it's with Chance chasing the other perp. Right. The other side. And that scene, I'll be honest, that scene kind of gave me the willies, too, because Chance is chasing that one guy and they're on this old wood bridge. Oh my God, yeah. do not fall on that bridge. That just like splinters a plenty. And then Chance t- looks a bit rickety. Oh, yeah. And then when he tackled him, I'm like, oh my God. Oh, I hope you're tetting the shots up to date. Who knows what you fell into? <laughs> oh, that gave me that gave me the willies. That's a good call on that moment, Bill. Yeah, there's very little humor in this movie, but that one got me. It got me too. That's a great call. I hadn't written that down. It just makes me think too, as you were describing it, which I appreciate, is the, again, I'm going to just probably overuse the word gritty in this podcast, but there's a kind of a raw realism to the way this is shot. There's a lot of shaky POV steady cam shots in this, and you just kind of feel like you're in the middle of it with these guys just chasing people around and in certain locations in LA. And like you mentioned, that particular location on the bridge, it just looks rough. Yes. It looks rough. Everything about it. And I don't mean just physically rough. Everything about it feels rough. Yeah, Los Angeles is not glorified at all in this movie. It really is the underbelly of Los Angeles. Not at all. That's what it seems like. Yeah. And they purposely, they they shot in a lot of the not so great areas of Los Angeles, which I give the filmmakers credit for having the balls. I'm going to bring up my my one moment that I, I really appreciated. This is also a line. It is a quote. So for me, the best line in the movie, and this is just my opinion, comes in the scene after Richard Chance has had sex with Ruth, his CI, a.k.a. covert informant. 
they get into a little conversation and she says, basically, I've got expenses, you know. And he replies with, well, guess what? Uncle Sam don't give a shit about your expenses. You want bread? Fuck a baker. That is a good line. Love that line. Love that line. <laughs> He's being an ass. But that you want bread? Fuck a baker. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, that's freaking priceless. So that was one of my favorite moments. Well, yeah, and that kind of goes into my first favorite scene. It, it is the first time that Chance goes to Rue's house. And um, we kind of talked about it a little bit in uh, initial thoughts. So Chance just kind of walks into this house, and you kind of know it's not his house because you've already seen him at his house with Vukovic, and which has that opening line that you said in the beginning of the movie that he's going to do whatever it takes to land masters. So you're kind of, where is he right now? And he goes yeah. in, gets in the refrigerator, gets a drink, starts drinking, and then you hear a female voice go, who's that? A lot of people seem to come to this house. So that's kind of interesting. And Chance says that it's him, mm. and he comes into the bedroom, and there we have Ruth, played by Darland Frugal. Which I don't know what time of day it is, but you would assume it's the morning because she's in bed. And then we have our, our lovemaking scene where she kind of gets up. Um, she doesn't have a top on, so she's topless. And Chance immediately just starts taking off his shirt and he throws it on the bed. And she takes the shirt and puts it on. So she's getting, she's always kind of getting dressed while he's getting undressed. And then we have right, the, yeah, the totally. infamous, um, holy moly, you know, I'm seeing this junk. I'm surprised. That's okay. And then, you know, they, they do their thing. And then the next shot, he's pretty much like, okay, gets some information from her about um, the diamond heist at that point. Actually, it is. It is. Okay. That's oh, right. why. Yeah, it is. Right. I understand why. Because it gets, yeah, I get a little confused. I go back and forth. But that's the whole point is she gives him the info on there's somebody coming into town and that's coming in with $50,000 to pay for some diamonds. Right. And that's when, go ahead. And, yeah. From and that. he's just like, I don't give a shit. That's not what I'm worried about. I'm, I'm trying to get masters. I'm worried about counterfeit thing. And he's like, I got to go. So that gives your first inclination. I'm like, oh, okay. Chance may work for the Secret Service, but he might not be as good of a guy as we think. And you still don't really know what the relationship is between him and Ruth. You could tell he's he, he has control of her. So that was kind of a, oh, okay. So Chance does have this dark side that we're going to start exploring a little bit more into the movie. So that's what I kind of liked about that scene. Because in the beginning, in the very beginning of the movie, they present chance as a hero because he thwarts a terrorist attack on the president so you're like oh this guy's an honorable guy you know he he sniffs this out and is able to save the president and now you're like oh okay he's not as clean as we thought so this will be interesting to see where this movie goes from here my first favorite scenes of the film absolutely 100 percent. good call and i understand the reasons why you chose that and i also appreciate you bringing up some of the plot points and character points there because I had some issues with that actually I which I'll save for my complaints okay but the way you explained it makes it sound better than the way I saw it so I think it was better on the second watch but as far as his as far as Richard Chance's arc and what we think we know him to be and what he really is as a person so I'm just glad you brought that up because that may affect my opinion overall, but we'll break it down a little bit more. 
So I'm going to get into my next favorite scene. And I have to believe this we will share. Okay. This is the car chase. Yes, I had that as my last favorite scene. Are you good to talk about it now? I can save it for my last No, go ahead. Let's, let's, yeah, let's get into it. I'll say it right now, Bill Bant. This is pretty fucking great. It is. Possibly an all-timer. I mean, you can put it up there with the great, great car chases in cinema, in my opinion. Not that I can say I've seen them all, but I've seen it in the research as such that it is lauded as one of the great car chases in cinema. But I'm not sure I've heard it as such or in discussion within pop culture over the years. And I'm not sure why. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, because I remember when we did The Hidden, I said how much I love that chase scene in the beginning. Yeah. The Hidden oh, yeah. chase doesn't hold the candle to this one. Oh, no. Pales in comparison. Yes. So I'm going to break this down relatively quickly. And Bill, when I'm done with my breakdown, please fill in the blanks okay. for our audience. We have Chance and Vukovic, Secret Service agent partners. And at this point in the story, Richard Chance has gone to Union Station in LA, the train station, and he's waiting for the arrival of Thomas Ling, who is, quote unquote, the Chinaman, who is arriving with $50,000. And Richard Chance is going to relieve Thomas Ling of that $50,000. He's going to take that money from him. So... Understanding that there's probably some people there to meet Thomas Ling as he gets off the train. Well, Chance grabs Thomas Ling, hurriedly gets out of Union Station, and there's Vukovic who pulls up in the getaway car, and they're going to get Thomas Ling out of, out of Dodge here and rob him because they need the $50,000. They need a part of that $50,000 to front for these counterfeit money that they're trying to buy off of Rick Masters. They are going undercover in this operation to get this counterfeit from Masters. And Masters has demanded some front money and they didn't have it. So they decide to rob this guy, Thomas Ling. This is all going to sound a little confusing to the audience because I think we've presented another story here a little bit, but just go with it for the time being. So, They grab Thomas Ling, throw him in the car, and this is where the car chase begins. Because immediately they're being followed by whom we assume Ling was supposed to meet and make the handoff to, or the people that were going to take him to the the seller, the person with the diamonds. And immediately Chance loses the tail. They pull over and Chance busts open the case, this briefcase that Ling has, and that's supposed to have the $50,000. But there's nothing inside the briefcase but a phone book. Bummer. Now, Chance realizes that Thomas Ling has the money on his person. He's wearing a money belt. And all of a sudden, the guys that were following them and that they had lost temporarily appear on the bridge above them. Like, they start shooting at him. And they kill Ling in the process. All hell is breaking loose. So Vukovic and Chance are freaking out. They did get the money belt. They hop back in the car. And now a really huge car chase ensues. They go down narrow back alleys filled with delivery trucks. They're going over train tracks. They're going down the LA River through the splashing water. And when they're going down the splashing water and everything, you know, it's just chaos. They think they've gotten away. And all of a sudden, a million cars show up and a million more gunmen show up. All these quote unquote bad guys are showing up out of nowhere. And they're like, what the hell? So they have to escape them. They continue driving in a narrow getaway and they're going over various LA freeways. 
By the way, I love all the shots of downtown LA. It's very recognizable landmarks. They're going, you know, Sixth Street Bridge, LA River, as I mentioned, and you're just seeing a lot of the freeways that if you live here, they're very recognizable. And once they're, uh, excuse me, going over all these LA freeways, they cross over the median. They end up going, or excuse me, they actually take the wrong on-ramp. They, this is Chance, who is just going nuts at this point, driving this vehicle. He goes down the wrong way of the freeway. He gets on the off-ramp, goes down the wrong way on the freeway, and it just straight into oncoming traffic, constantly weaving in and out of cars and trucks and semis. There's just a, a plethora of great camera angles, POV shots, wonderful sound design. At one point, everything actually goes quiet. You just hear Vukovic panting, which is brilliant. And then juxtaposition to that, you hear Chance hooting and hollering half the time when he thinks they've gotten away. He's just loving the thrill of the chase. He's like this adrenaline junkie. And despite some obvious shots of the stuntmen behind the wheels of these vehicles in this chase and some footage that is clearly sped up for effect, this scene is brilliantly choreographed and filmed, and it's totally exhilarating. It's just an unbelievable car chase with 20 to 30 people chasing William Peterson and John Pankow over all of downtown LA and all over the freeways. And they end up getting away at the end. And Vukovic is freaking out while Peterson is basically jumping on top of the vehicle that they got away in, clearing out the back window, which had been shot through. And he knows they got to repair the window before they turn their agency vehicle back in. But he's thrilled that they just got away with $50,000. So I don't know. What else what, what else do you want to add to this unbelievable car chase scene? Yeah, so the whole scene is set up just because of what Chance is willing to do to take down Masters. So what happens before that is Chance and Vukovic pose as bankers, and they ask Masters to counterfeit them a million dollars. And Masters tells them, okay, I'll do it for 50000 and I need thirty up front. But the problem is the Secret Service will only give you up to ten. And even though Chance says, hey, I have a chance to get Masters, I need that money – they're like, nope, you can't have it. So Ruth knows about this Asian gentleman who's coming in with fifty thousand dollars to buy diamonds, and Chance tells Vukovic, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna hold this guy up and take the money, so we have the front money for the counterfeit money." And Vukovic Correct. is not on board at first, but because it's his partner, he's gonna go through with this. And of course, Chance makes it sound like it's gonna be easy peasy, but it's not. Because when they meet at the train station, first we see these two guys following. And like you said, you think it's two guys that are supposed to meet this Asian gentleman to take them to wherever the drop is to do the buy and call it a day. But once they start getting away and all these cars are coming out of the woodwork, you're thinking, what the hell? Maybe two cars, yeah. maybe three. I mean, at one point, there's at least there's about 10 cars chasing them. And they're all guns right. ablazing. And Vukovic is like shit his pants in the back of the car. And Chance, he's just getting high off of this. I mean, he is sky high. Oh, completely. Because we kind of find out he is a thrill junkie. And yeah, he's he's right. getting a thrill out of this. And you're just thinking to yourself, how the hell are they going to get out of it? I mean, there's one point where they are driving down the wrong way of the highway. And all these cars are coming at them. And we're talking 1985. This isn't CGI. And you're almost covering your eyes like, how the hell did they pull this off? How, how many accidents Absolutely. did they have? It's so exhilarating. And that was the thing. It was, oh, shit, for me, because I really thought 
going back to my earliest memories, I thought it was William Peterson's character was chasing someone. They're the ones getting chased. They're the ones that they get right. caught. They're in deep, deep, deep shit. And then you find out afterwards they are in deep, deep, deep shit because <laughs> yeah. the Asian guy was an agent and he was there to set up someone else. Yeah. He was an undercover secret service. Yeah. Federal agent. Now, they yeah. didn't kill him, but they put him in the circumstance to get killed. So that was definitely another oh shit moment. I didn't see that coming. I forgot about that. No, no way did I see that coming. Yeah, I had no idea. And it's not one of those like car chases. When I say traffic's coming the other way, it's not like one or two cars. It's all three cars in all three lanes are all coming at the same time. And even though you said there's some sped up stuff, I don't think it's that noticeable as you would think. I, yeah. Those shots don't occur on the freeway. It's when they're going up the ramp, right? Freeway stuff, I think, is impeccable. Yeah. Yeah, It's more, it's in some other separate sequences in that chase. But Yeah. yeah, there's even a great thing where they're kind of going through. I think it's Wilmington. It's all these trucks that are basically dropping off their stuff and they're trying to weave through all that and people yeah. are jumping out of the way. And the, the car chase alone is amazing. If you can find it online, you got to check it out. It is definitely the highlight of the film. Oh, yeah. It's a long chase. There's a part where you think it's over. I mean, when they get to the L.A. River, you think it's over. Yeah, they think it's over. That they got away. And then all of a sudden the back window gets shut out. Yeah. And it just they just keep going. But yeah, that kind of, it's a good way to lead you into the third act of the film. Uh, no question about it. And thanks, Bill Bant, for properly setting up the scene, because I think the audience needed to know exactly where our protagonists were when this scene begins. Because this whole movie, it's we're trying to figure out basically who are the good guys, who are the bad guys. And that's what really makes this movie gritty and leaves you, or left me at least, with a bad feeling a sick feeling in my stomach and in this particular scene especially where it's just so smartly done because we know that our cops our secret service agents have had to be posing undercover to set up this deal with masters so that's one thing but on top of it they're going to commit a robbery in order to re you know make sure this deal with masters can go through and then the robbery turns into this car chase, which just turns into complete mayhem. And I just, the total realism, and you nailed it, there was no CGI. The fact that they pulled this off, it's just like, could you imagine being a fly in the wall of being there watching them shoot this? That would be a dream. Oh, yeah. Just to watch a little bit of them trying to figure this all out. Huge, huge props. And the the just from a storytelling aspect too, how the stakes keep going up as more and more quote unquote bad guys show up. To attend, and that's what you said. It's like, where the hell are all these guys coming from? And how did they know that Chance and Vukovic are committing this robbery and or trying to get away with this briefcase or the money belt with fifty thousand dollars in it? Like, where, how did they? All these, where are these guys coming yeah, from? Yeah, it's like it's a and bag of diamonds. Why are all these guys over a bag of diamonds? You're like, there's no way they're going to get away. There's no way, but they actually do, and you buy it. And I was smiling when I was watching the chase, man. I was smiling. I was just going, this is fun. I was gritting my this teeth because I was just trying to figure out the logistics. Yeah. Because you just have so many waves of cars coming yeah, out yeah, there. Oh, yeah. And you're just like, man, you can't make a mistake when you're filming. This is not like a one car, two car. Oh, yeah. There's some great stuff. They're going up against like 20 cars at a time coming the opposite direction. You just got to hope like all these people know I got to turn left here. I got to turn right here. There's a lot of precision driving and a lot of precision timing. Yes. Great stunts. And... On top of it, I miss the days of old in this way because it's not over-edited. 
you really get a feeling of where they're at and where you know, where the bad guys are and who's chasing who at what point. Versus today, you get a lot of these, and no real knocking the film stick because the action can be really intense, but there's sometimes they're over-edited or there's too many cuts and you get lost yes. as to where are our characters at on the street even. Yes. What neighborhood are they in? You get lost because there's too many. It's cut to close-up, cut to the car, cut to the wheel moving, cut to the hood of the car, cut to something fancy. And it's just like, no, no, no. Just give me long shots of cars driving and weaving in and out of shit and screeching tires. And, and it's just what makes it fun. It's like they lose one car, two cars show up. They lose those two cars. Well, then four cars show up. They lose those four cars. Yeah. Now eight cars are showing up. It's just nonstop. It's almost like playing a video game. And every time you level up, the baddies get worse. Right. And it's the same here. It's like every time they got rid of one, the worst villain would show up. By far. So um, this takes me to uh, my final favorite scene because, of course, I had this car chase. Who wouldn't have the car chase scene down on this? Richard Chance and Carl Cody, man. I love their little two confrontations together. Just because, man, John Turturro, man. He's just amazing. Yeah. So what happens is, like we mentioned, Chance has Cody arrested. So now Cody's in jail and Masters is worried that Cody's going to turn. And Chance is trying to make him turn. But Cody, he has his ethics and he's told Chance, hey, this isn't the first time I've been in prison. And I've never turned over anyone before, and I'm not going to do it again. But then, you know, Master puts a hit on Cody, and Cody survives the hit. So Chance thinks, all right, I have another opportunity to maybe get him to talk. And they just have this great exchange where Chance just tells flat out, I want, I want to get Rick Masters. And Carl comes back with, I've taken four falls. I've never ratted anybody in my life, and I've had plenty of chances, believe me. So Chance tries to come back with, Masters is your friend. I don't blame you. I would never hang up a friend. Anybody who would is a piece of shit. Thing is, your friend tried to have you iced. And Cody has probably one of the best lines in the movie, which goes, that doesn't mean I'm going to roll over and play informer. If you're looking for a pigeon, go to the park. What a great line. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Their yeah. interactions with each other, I just thought was fantastic. This is pretty early in Totoro's career, but you certainly see in this scene like, oh yeah, this is a guy you want to have in your movies from here on in. And it's, it's just a small, it's a small part. It, it's unfortunately like a storyline that doesn't, doesn't almost seem to go anywhere. And that's right really in my complaints, but every time he's on screen in this movie, there's just a, a gravitas to him. You just kind of know like, Oh yeah, this guy, this guy's got something. This is a, this is an actor oh, yeah. I should be watching in the future. And it's, it's just, it's a small part. Anytime he was on, even in the prison when he's talking to masters, and Masters tells him that Waxman says he didn't deliver the money. And Cody's like, when I get I'm going to kill that son of a bitch. I gave him his money. I watched him count it and put it in the safe. He has it. He's he's trying to screw me over. So John Turturro, kudos to him in this one. Anytime he shows up in the movie, thumbs up moment. Thanks for just giving Turturro his props. Well-deserved. Turturro knows his character. Just knows his character. He knows exactly what movie he's in. He knows the tone of the piece and he nails it. Delivers every time. And I'm glad you brought up that scene, Bill Bant, because that leads into my Chance and Cody scene, which is my last favorite scene. So when Chance goes to visit Cody in jail, the first thing he he walks in and is very confident. He looks down on the table because Cody is sitting at a table and on top of the table is an actress's headshot her black and white eight by 10 headshot. And 
It's a little confusing, and this is part of my complaints. We'll get to it. But Chance looks down at the headshot. It's like, pretty girl. And then Cody just takes the photos. Like, basically, it's none of your business. Well, let's me, let me go to what happens uh, next within the story regarding Chance and Cody. Chance ends up getting Cody out of jail so that Cody can help Chance get to Rick Masters. And Cody pulls a fast one on Richard Chance, says, well, I've got to go see somebody in the hospital that I know first. And Chance buys it hook, line and sinker. And he's like, okay, we'll go take care of this first. But then I got to, you know, we got to get to business. And when they're in the hospital, Cody turns around. That's funny because I said earlier that he wasn't very physical, but in this scene, he's extremely physical. And he basically gets the better of Chance. He knocks him out. He punches him, kicks him and escapes. And now Chance is screwed because he pulled some strings to get Cody out of jail for this deal to bring down Masters. And now he's lost Cody, who is in his custody. Not a good look. So later on, he's got to retrieve Cody. He's got to find Totoro. Where did he disappear off to? Well, Chance figures it out. He puts it together. Cody was dating an actress. And Chance had seen the girl's headshot, knows her name, tracks her down through the Screen Actors Guild directory and finds out where she lives, goes to the apartment complex, and this is my last favorite scene. I love it. He walks up to the door. He presses the little doorbell. We do see a couple of shots of interior of the apartment where I believe her name's Claudia, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, the actress is inside and she's the girlfriend of Totoro. And sure enough, Totoro, aka Cody, is there with her. So we know he's there and Chance is at the right place. He's rung the doorbell. And what ends up happening is the actress, the girlfriend, Instead of coming to the front door, there's a sliding glass door with a curtain next to the front door. She starts to open it and Chance immediately grabs her by the throat with one hand. It's pretty awesome. It looks kind of painful. It prevents her from screaming. And immediately Chance puts a finger up to his lips to tell her to be quiet, hush, hush, while he's got one hand around her throat and she can't scream pushes her back into the apartment, into her kitchen area, continuing to hold her up by her neck. He's almost lifting her off the ground. It looks pretty gnarly, but it's completely silent. Meanwhile, Cody comes out of the back bedroom and into the uh, hallway and is calling out for her, but she's not responding, obviously. So he immediately knows something wrong. He goes into a side room, comes out holding a gun. And I love the way the shot is framed. I would love to have a poster of this. The fact that the kitchen and the hallway are separated by one wall. It's like a divider going right down the middle of the frame in this shot. And on the left-hand side, you've got Chance holding up the girl by her throat. And on the right-hand side, you have Cody coming down the hallway with the gun. And they're on either side of the wall. Eventually, Cody comes around the edge of the wall and Chance drops the girl, spins around, knocks the gun down, and then ends up beating the crap out of Cody and tackles him and has this great great line after he's punched him a couple times and jumps on top of him and goes, shit, you okay, Carl? <laughs> and puts his hands behind his back and handcuffs him. But I just love the tension of the scene and the physicality of the scene and the grittiness. I'll use that word once again. Yes, the grittiness of the scene. It's just cool. I, I, I don't know. I just love the way it's shot. And... He takes Cody down and says to Cody, well, you're going to tell me where the location of the plant is, meaning the counterfeit printing warehouse. 
but I, it's kind of confusing. And I don't know if this is part of your complaints that you were alluding to, but I'm like, we assume that Cody then gave Chance the location of the plant, but Chance never gets a chance. <laughs> I get it? Chance never gets a chance to tell Vukovic the actual location. And we'll get into that. Why? But I, don't know, I love that scene. Good stuff. Yeah, it's a good scene because here we go. What Chance will do in order to get his guy. Because when he goes in, he grabs the actress and pretty much pushes her back into the room, has her pinned almost against the kitchen counter. Yeah. He never identifies himself as any kind of law enforcement. No. So she has no idea who this guy is. And maybe he does that so she'll keep quiet, but that's pretty menacing. He had to keep quiet too, but he just comes off as a total thug. But yeah, you would think it would at least slide his badge out and put it in her face right. and shut the hell up. But then you have Cody, who knows right away there's a problem. Absolutely. So kudos to that. So that's what makes it exciting, too. And then they're both on the, the side of this paper-thin wall. And if Cody doesn't cock that gun, there could have been bigger problems. Because at least then Chance can identify where he is. Like, okay, he'll come around another two seconds so he can get him, but... Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of tension. It, it is cool, and it does it plays with just the right amount. Yeah, and yeah. it is a very good scene. I probably should have put that in one of my favorite scenes. I agree with you. That's a good call. Even the brief fight sequence when they get into their their little scuffle, mm -hmm. the punches look real. Meaning, Chance does like a couple of jabs and just catches him a couple times, and it's not the sound effects aren't overdone. It looks like he's just hitting him. I think it, that's it's smartly done. Yeah, because he knows he has a gun. So the first thing he knows he has to do is get rid of the gun and then just get him down as quick as possible, which he does. Yeah, it just doesn't feel like Peterson is pulling his punches. And again, I just kudos to the not only the direction, but the actors in these sequences that are totally committed. They're all completely committed to the, the physicality and the action. Yeah, it's not one of those fake fights where they're flying all over the place. Yeah, or ghost punches or something like that. Yeah, you know? as you would say, pretty gritty. <laughs> uh, anything else for <laughs> favorite scenes or moments? Uh, that's all I got, man. Hello, Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. All right, so let's move on to Swiss Cheese and Complaint Department. And why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, and if it doesn't fall under Swiss Cheese, we just file a complaint with the Complaint Department. Do you have any Swiss cheese? Uh, I didn't have real Swiss cheese moment. I do have complaints, though. Yeah, likewise, I didn't have anything for Swiss cheese. It was more on the complaint side. Uh, I'll go first with this one. Sure. This was just a little bit silly. The movie 
starts around December 20th and runs through about January 29th, I think. So, you know, it's the holiday time, right? Mm-hmm. Do you see any indication that it's the holidays at all during the movie? Not at all. Granted, it is, it's Christmas in L.A., but still, if I mean... You still have decorations. I, oh, absolutely. Especially I give a lot at the hotel. The citizens of Los Angeles, they do it up, man. Especially up here in the valley yeah. where I, I'm at. I've gone around to just driven around neighborhoods around Christmas time to see all the Christmas lights and such. So they do it up. But yeah, you're right. There's nothing, nothing in this movie to denote that Zero. it's a holiday season. Yeah. So you could see where they initially made budget cuts. No Christmas <laughs> decorations. I was like, this could end up in one of my favorite holiday movies, but there's no holiday stuff. So I'm glad you brought that up. I thought you were going in a different direction, but you nailed it with that complaint. My complaint is the timestamps in general. What the hell is going on with the timestamps? Why do we need them? Why are the timestamps using military time, a.k.a. the 24-hour clock? Why are the timestamps using different fonts? Why have them at all? It's not as if the story takes place within a real time constraint. We understand there's a lot of tension and deals need to get done and business gets needs to get taken care of. I do not understand why there are any timestamps in this movie. But it's something they do. I, I don't understand the choice. Maybe you can explain it to me. No, I agree. There's no reason to have the timestamps. Basically, the timestamps are wonky, and I don't know why they're even in the movie. No reason to even have them. There really isn't. So in the beginning, so the cold open is... Oh, yeah. Um, we see Secret Service showing up with the president. At the Beverly Hilton. And I kind of reference it is kind of Reagan, because I think you do hear the voice. And I think there's a shot of a TV, and you see Reagan on the TV. So it's supposed to be Ronald Reagan. Oh, it's his voice. Yeah, it's from one of his actual speeches, yeah. And then... A couple of Secret Service agents are hanging out in the hotel while the speech is going on. Hart's in the kitchen checking that everything's okay. And then we see Chance again coming out of the room because he's been relieved by one of the other agents. And you know, it's like, oh, yeah, there's a card game going on. If you want to play, go ahead. And Chance is about to walk down the hallway because maybe it's his turn on patrol. I don't know. And he hears something behind him. And he sees a service staff walking down with a tray of food. Chance is just kind of watching to see if the guy's going to come back, and he doesn't. So he runs down the hall to see what it is, and he sees the food there, and he goes to lift the tray. There's no food, so he knows we have a problem. So now he's got to find this guy. And eventually leads him to the roof, and we find the service supposed staff on the roof covered in basically bombs. And he's you know, saying he's a martyr, and he's going to blow up i don't know how he's what he's gonna do that makes no sense i have a whole issue with this yeah okay but chance is radioed that there's something wrong so chance is trying to talk the terrorists into stopping and just he puts his gun away i'm like hey let's just talk let's just talk and of course this terrorist doesn't want to hear anything about it meanwhile we see Hart come spider-manning up the side of the building like where the hell are you coming from thank you what the hell is going on in the scene? I don't know. Yeah. At first I thought it was cool. And then when I watched it again, I'm like, this is kind of stupid. Then he grabs the terrorist, goes to pull him off the building. And while he's pulling him off the building, the terrorist activates the explosives and literally blows himself up. Right. Blows himself up within like three feet of heart. Heart should be dead. 100%. He's hanging on the side of the building. The blast radius even if the explosion itself 
doesn't kill him, the blast wave would be enough to knock him off the side of the building and he'd fall to his death. No question about it. I've got a lot of issues with this entire cold open. I thought it was entertaining on the first watch, and just like yourself on the second watch, I have a million problems with it. Yes. So much so that I think the whole cold open should be rewritten, to be honest. I totally agree with you. What was the terrorist's plan? To pull a John McClane and swing down on the rope and through the window to explode on Ronald Reagan? None of it makes sense. Because he's because we have no idea where the president is. No, we don't know where the president is. And it's a bad plan by the terrorists regardless. And you're right. How the hell does Agent Hart get up the side of the building, climb up there, and in effect, put the terrorist plan into effect? He yanks the terrorist off the building. Isn't what that what the terrorist wants to do is jump off the building and swing down? That's exactly yes. what Hart is doing. He's pulling him off the building. It's the terrorist's fault for prematurely blowing himself up. If he would have just swung down, he would have actually done what he planned to do. Anyway, he does blow up way too close to Hart. And immediately afterward, we see Chance and Hart having a little heart to heart on the roof. And yep. he literally has like an aching shoulder. I don't think he even has like char marks or burn, nope. mar- you know, smoke damage or anything. Uh, it's completely ridiculous. But here, this is, so as a writer, you can help me out. Now, I, I think the cold open, the action of it is okay, but if the goal in our cold open is to establish character roles, i.e. the secret ser- that they're secret service agents, the relationship, we know that Hart and Chance are now our partners in the time period. We get it, mid-80s, it's the Reagan era. That's all well and good, but I'd stick, if I were myself, if I were redoing the, the cold open, I would stick to some aspect or of these agents working within the fraud division investigation meaning not the protection division of Secret Service being on a presidential detail, meaning let's just get to the heart of the matter. What's this movie about? They work for the fraud division. They're investigating Rick Masters, maybe get into that or some aspect of counterfeit, uh, the counterfeit uh, ring or money that they're trying, you know, this ring that they're trying to bust. And then we actually see Hart get killed in the cold open not 10 minutes later. So that's the cold open, is that we already see them working the fraud division, following Rick Masters. It might not be Rick Masters himself, but maybe one of his mules or a crony or whatever that works for him. And in the process, Hart gets killed, and then Chance gets partnered up with Vukovic, and they go after Masters. The problem for me was that we see them as all you know dressed up in suits, working the presidential detail, and that's the cold open is this terrorist situation that doesn't make any sense at all. And then it goes into they're in plain clothes working fraud. It threw me off. I'm like, wait, weren't they just working the presidential detail? And now they're in plain clothes and they're working something completely different. It just was jarring to me, which is a whole complaint I have about the solo movies. There's some jarring things in this. Again, I just felt like in the end, the bottom line is that the protection mandate, you know, the president's protection is just not relative to this movie's story. I would have done something completely different with the cold open. Yeah, I agree with that, too, because then we go into the opening credits and there's all these shots of people buying money. It's That's why I have. I kept my asking next... myself, what is going on here? Yeah. Why are people buying money? But if we did what you had said, 
it would have made a little bit more sense because then you would have known. Because, like I said, how many people do know that Secret Service investigate, you know, the funny money, counterfeit money side right. of things? Not well, many. That was another thought I had is if you're going to do that cold open as th- them attached to the presidential detail, then have that paragraph of text at the beginning to explain Secret oh, yeah. Service agents have a dual mandate. One is protection. Two, investigation. This is the Secret Service. Dun, dun. <laughs> Whatever. You know what I right. mean? Right. And then it goes into, and then we're like, oh, okay. I get it now. No, I agree. All right. We touched on this a little bit. So Carl Cody, loose end, right? We agree. We don't. What the hell happened to him after Chance captures him again? We don't see him anymore. No. There's some cut stuff. I don't know if something got deleted there. Totoro disappears after that. Because he escapes from Chance, and then we don't see him again for maybe another 20 minutes. And Chance That's a whole has thing too. put his job on the line about taking him out because he goes to a superior and a superior does not want to do it. And Chance calls him out and a superior is pissed, but he signs off on it. And then he gets away. How is he covering this up this whole time? There's got to be a couple of days. Like you said, it's a long time before he goes back to find Totoro, to find Cody. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Like he just disappears from the plot altogether all of a sudden. While they're doing the car chase and all that stuff. Yeah, because he kind of mentions to Cody when he's slapping him around. He's like, lucky for you, I didn't tell the judge that you went missing. It's like, lucky for him, lucky for you, no one knows that he went missing. You'd be up shit creek right now. You'd be suspended. Among everything else you've been doing up to this point. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of weird. How was he covering that? I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I felt like the editing was a little bit jarring from the get go. Like you said, in the opening credits. Look, I love establishing setting and locale, but we get some really random static images. It's inter- the images of the street scenes and the industrial scenes are intercut with static images of of a model who then, again, we later find out that's actually Bianca, who's Master's counterpart. But we see shots of money exchanging hands. There's investigation photos and then a static image of Ruth lying half naked on her bed. Not that I'm complaining about that, but it's kind of like foreshadowing or kind of getting ahead and we don't know who these characters are they're just showing images in these opening credits and then we learn who the characters are later so again it's kind of like backwards for me in a lot of it and it's a random stylistic approach i understand that it just doesn't work for me there's a lot of jump cuts in this movie that i don't i'm not down with (laughs) in particular as far as again stylistic approach it's a creative choice for example when uh vukovic goes to investigate Master's Warehouse the first time when he goes downtown, you know, and he's, uh, because he went and talked to a woman that runs basically a, uh, she's like, has an art gallery. And she mentions that, yeah, she had worked with Master's before. Master's was a talented artist. And Vukovic says, oh yeah, where would he, you know, where did he work? And she says, well, you can find his studio. It's at this building and there's a big Chinese character uh, written on the garage door. So Vukovic goes to find it and he's walking alongside this art studio on the exterior and the garage door has the big Chinese character written on it. And he goes to open a door and the door is locked. And then boom, jump cuts to a bunch of guys playing basketball in a playground. What just happened? Mm-hmm. And that happens several times in this movie. I'll try to come up with some other examples. But it's just, it's off-putting to me. I don't understand what's going on with some of the editing. And then there's some very, again, stylistic choices in the movie that were distracting 
there's some stuff with uh, like using the black and white negative. Like sometimes I'm going, is this a cop drama or is this supposed to be kind of an art film? Because those black and white negative shots, do you know what I'm talking about, Bill Bant? Are, are they supposed to signify mm-hmm. something? Maybe like a character's turn or is it the obvious symbolism of the like duality of human nature, good versus evil, black and white kind of thing? It happens a couple of times, especially at the end when Vukovic takes down Masters and he's like looking into the flames and he fires the gun and it's he runs out of bullets and he's just it's clicking and then it goes to black and white and it's like I don't I, I don't know what's going on here. So I had some issues with some jump cuts and editing and it was just off putting for me. To get just past that rant, I'm going to say this real quick. God bless Wang Chung. Look, everybody have fun tonight. Everybody Wang Chung tonight. But this music's awful. That's all I'm going to say about that. That's a complaint. Yeah. It was a little jarring. <laughs> and then we get really loud because I think my wife came out twice. It's like, can you turn that down? Uh, I'm like, sorry. I'm trying to hear the dialogue. And then all of a sudden, dar, 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 whatever that was. They kept playing over and over that same eight notes. Right. I wish someone else came in and scored this. All right. So my final complaint is just about the whole undercover aspect. So you have Chance and Vukovic who are trying to play undercover bankers from, like I mentioned this before, Palm Springs are trying to get counterfeit money from masters. Mm-hmm. But then Chance acts anything like a banker because, you know, master asks him a question about like, oh, I know someone in Palm Springs. Do you know such and such? And Chance comes back with, well, I know Donald Duck in Hollywood. Do you know him? You know, like, I understand what Masters is trying to do. He's trying to find out if this guy's not undercover. But why would Chance come back to him like an Like, anytime he deals with Masters, I mean, I get it. He wants to get this guy so bad because he killed his partner. But keep your cover. You have to keep acting like you're a banker. Mm-hmm. And he's doing anything but. Like, Masters has got to know you're a cop. I think so. I agree. No, I, I, I totally agree. It's a solid complaint. Yeah, mm-hmm. why would he go at Masters like that? Crockett and Tubbs wouldn't do that. <laughs> They're a little, a little smoother, not quite as aggressive. Yes. Good call. I thought Chances, yeah. He was just too aggressive with Masters. I'm like, dude, you got to keep your cover. You're just a dumb banker trying to get some money. Absolutely. Like, if he came off as the muscle for Vukovic, that would have made sense. Kind of like what Crockett used to do for Tubbs, but they present themselves as two bankers. So you got to play the banker role, like it or not. Yeah, yeah. He should know better. He's been doing this for a while. <laughs> that's my final complaint. Wow, that's it. Okay. I'll try to make this quick, man. I, I wrote down a whole lot, but I'm going to okay. self-edit as best as I can. And my issues here are with character development. And maybe you can help me explain some of it or make it feel okay. better uh, for me and turn it into a non-issue. Now, let's talk about Ruth who is the CI for Richard Chance. I want to talk in particular about her introduction. I feel like the scene required a little more context. And look, we have not seen her character yet. This is her introduction. She just appears on scene as if she's just a hot girl that approaches Chance. She gives Chance this info about Max Waxman, an attorney that Rick Masters was using to move his paper or counterfeit bills. Okay, And I guess we're supposed to figure out from that dialogue that Ruth is the covert informant, but it happens so quickly. I was like, wait, what what are they talking about? And so I didn't even know what the conversation was about at first. The dialogue happens pretty rapidly. And then she brings up the fact that she has a kid in this conversation and Chance goes, oh, you've got a kid? He's not aware of it. 
And at this point, we don't know that Chance and Ruth are having an intimate relationship. They're sleeping together. I saw this in the research. It's kind of funny. They say that Chance is sextorting her instead of extorting her. No, oh, yeah, true. So later on, we understand that they're lovers. He's sleeping. He's having sex with her. And he's got a key to her house, lets himself in, helps himself to a beer in the fridge, makes love to her. But he doesn't know that she has a kid. I don't know. That was weird to me. I'm okay with that. The introduction scene, I've just felt like could have used some more clarification. She doesn't appear like a CI. I don't know. She just seems like a regular person walking up to him. And the dialogue happened so quickly. I didn't, it was just confusing to me. And I didn't get it until later when he goes to her house, actually. And it's like, oh, okay, now I'm getting all the information I need as to who she is. I don't know. Maybe it's a taste thing. No, but I understand what you're saying because you don't really know what her role is. Because at it's, first you think maybe she's just someone who works for a different department. There's no context. She's just giving him information. There's no context. She approaches him like at an outdoor market of some kind. And they have a quick conversation. Yes. And obviously he's getting information from her. But who is she to him? And Yeah. And how the hell is she even getting this information? Yeah. It's just totally out of context until the context is, isn't provided until later. Do you see where I was saying earlier how things are a little bit backwards in this movie, the way it's written, as if we're supposed to figure out certain things, like we're so smart as an audience, which I appreciate that they're writing for a smart audience, but a little, it's a little too vague. I needed a little bit more definition. I think we would know usually right away what her role is and that she was arrested for something. We never figure out what it is and why she's on parole, but I think we would probably find it out in that scene initially. Right. Now that I think about the kid thing, yeah, you would think she'd have a picture of the kid somewhere in her house, so he should know. Yeah, they've had an ongoing relationship. It just it, there's some weird there's some weirdness to it. Okay, but uh, regarding Richard Chance, William Peterson's character and his development and his art, my question here was the motive versus kind of the morality. My question for you, Bill Band, is: Do you think you know Richard Chance was always kind of a bad dude, as you'd mentioned earlier in this podcast? And I said we would kind of return to this. Or was he pushed over the edge after his partner's death in the beginning of the movie? And we know that he's young, brash, talented, a thrill seeker, that he's a bit of an adrenaline junkie. Great. Now, then after his partner's death, and he has a new partner in John Vukovic, and they go into Max Waxman's house, and he, he takes the logbook from the crime scene. That's basically stealing evidence from a crime scene before it's been logged in. Uh, you know, there's some moments where it's like, okay, is he, he's leaning towards being a little bit, you know, he's crossing the line. He's doing whatever it takes. He explains that to Vukovic. But it's that scene with Ruth when he goes to her house, and you kind of touched on this too, is like, especially in the moment when Ruth says to Chance, if I stop giving you information, what's going to happen? And he looks at her with such like just this blank stare is so cold and says, I'll have your parole revoked. Just like it's nothing. For me was the moment. You said it was a moment for you was just before that, but it's the same scene. And you're like, oh, Richard Chance is actually a son of a bitch. He's a real son of a bitch. Yes. I was a little confused and where I was wanting a little more definition. And you kind of explained it and made me feel better about this as to should they have shown him to be a little bit of a uh, not walking a fine, like the straight line kind of from the beginning, like when I'm talking about how they could have rewritten the cold open and shown some different character traits or relationship, whatever it is, because he does seem like a hero in the beginning and a good dude. 
And then we find out kind of later on, I'm going, wait, is he turning bad because his partner died and he's doing whatever it takes? Or was he just a bad dude to begin with who's just getting worse? You kind of miss this in the beginning. After we see the bungee jump scene, they go to the bar and they're kind of having the almost like a semi-retirement party for Hart. Right. And Hart says about Chance, you know, what a great partner he's been for the last seven years, even though he's been reckless. Right. So he kind of says it out there. So you kind of think Hart keeps him in check. So now that Hart's gone, no one's keeping him in check. And he really wants to get masters. He really wants to get back to the guy he thinks killed his partner. So maybe this is the person he's always been, but because of Hart. Okay. All right. I buy that, you know, man. You can't do that. I buy that. I would have liked to see a little more of it, but I, I, I buy that. Yeah. It's just really, really briefly touched on. Yeah. And, and and when they come out of that bar in the beginning, Hart does get a little on his case, gets on Chance's case and goes, you got to stop it with this reckless behavior. You're always looking for thrills. It's going to get you into trouble. And Chance is like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm not, you know, I don't have a family or I'm not retiring or whatever it is, he says. Right. And I think that's interesting that they don't give Richard Chance a family in this movie. You know, he doesn't have accountability to anyone else. Correct. Then his arc is as he goes darker and darker and he really is an asshole. It's interesting because at the end, when, uh, spoiler alert, this is, was the surprise to death because you're thinking William Peterson is the protagonist or really the main character and his arc is the one that you're supposed to be following all the way through and he is prematurely killed. I mean, it's towards the end of the film, no doubt, but I mean, he gets killed unexpectedly and I was like, you know what? Yeah, he got his comeuppance. Chance is not a good guy. Like he crossed the line and he paid yeah. the price. And I didn't feel bad for him, you know? And I was like, oh, why It was an oh shit moment. For sure. But I thought it was interesting that I didn't right, was, feel bad that he got killed. I didn't either. Because they did, actually did do a good job of making him a real son of a bitch, which was surprising to me. It was just that in the beginning of the film, I didn't see him that way until the scene at Ruth. And then he just goes darker and darker. So the arc is pretty solid. It's just the beginning, I thought, was kind of confusing in the way. But I think maybe we are supposed to be misled, I guess. But you make a great point with the fact that Hart is there to keep him in check. All right, so let's uh, move on. Yeah, so it's uh, now time for Hey, It's That Actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films, an actor making their big screen debut. Or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's Hey, It's That Actor. Jason, who do you have for Hey, It's That Actor? I actually chose somebody from a scene you had already described in the beginning. And that's when our special agents, our Secret Service special agents, are chasing the two guys through uh, the alleys and over the bridge. And the man chased by Richard, that's who he's credited as. That's Gary Cole. I love me some Gary Cole, man. Three of his projects that immediately jump into my mind when I think of Gary Cole. One, Office Space. He plays Bill Lumberg. Two, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. He plays Ricky Bobby's dad. Reese Bobby. And number three, Veep. Think of Veep, the HBO series. Uh, he plays the character Kent Davison. Man, he's got the leading man looks, but a great voice. And he plays comedy so well. Very, very funny guy. He also, speaking of his filmography... Was on Miami Vice. Yes. In 1986, he plays the character Jackson Crane in the episode Trust Fund Pirates. According to IMDb, did you know this? I didn't know this. Both Gary Cole and Jimmy Smits 
were edged out by Don Johnson and Phil Michael Thomas for the roles of Crockett and Tubbs. Gary Cole and Jimmy Smits were considered for the roles of Crockett and Tubbs in Miami Vice. I think I might have heard about Cole, but not Smits. Obviously, Smits is in the pilot, but... The pilot, yeah. But Gary Cole, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd never heard that before. Uh, I couldn't see yeah, No, no, it's not the same. No. As much as I like Gary Cole. I mean, it's, it's hard, though. Right. I mean, you know, when you have an actor that makes yeah, the exactly. part their own. He would have been good, but... Gary Cole, he was in a TV series called Midnight Caller. He was in 61 episodes of that show. I don't oh, know. I remember that. I never watched it, but I know the title. Uh, speaking of another Secret Service agent movie, he was in In the Line of Fire. I love that movie, Clint Eastwood. Oh, I don't even remember He was that. also, of course, oh, man, he's great. As Mike Brady in the Brady Bunch movie. Hell oh, yes. yeah. Gary Cole, man. He's awesome. Look him up. Oh, he had that Oh, nail. yeah. He was just great. And he did the sequel as well. Uh, look him up. He's done a ton of voice work on well-known shows from Archer to Big Mouth to Bob's Burgers to Family Guy. And a little behind the scenes on landing this movie, William Peterson uh, was an old friend of Gary Cole's from a long time ago. They started a theater company in Chicago. I guess William Peterson was renting a big house while he was doing the movie. And there was uh, there were other Chicago actors out there migrating, mooching off of Peterson while they were out in L.A., Basically, Gary Cole says Peterson's the reason why he got the, the small part. And while filming it, he, quote, I never ran so much in a day in my life. <laughs> because that's the scene he's in. He's just constantly running. Some serious running there. Who's your hey, it's that actor? I figured you were going to put Gary Cole. So that's why I was like, all right, he's off limits. I'm going to pick someone else. But you actually did mention my hey, it's that actor earlier. And that was Steve James, who played Jeff Rice. And he was the African-American who was supposed to set up, well, he ended up setting up the failed hit on Carl Cody. And then Masters comes to his house to collect. And then all hell breaks loose. Um, so Steve had some minor roles in such movies as The Exterminator, The Mouse and the Woman, Vigilante, and The Delta Force. He also played Kung Fu Joe in the exploitation parody, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker. Yeah. <laughs> but as you mentioned, the movie I know him most from is Endless Late Night Showings of the canon film classic trilogy, American Hell Ninja, yeah. starring Michael Dudikoff, who was only in the first two, and then they had someone else in the third. But um, God, this was sad. Uh, Steve passed away at the age of 41 from I read cancer. That. It's tragic. Crazy. Man. Yeah. So young. And um, at his service, um, one of the eulogies was done by Sidney Poitier. Wow. Who knew his wife? Steve James, man. Great call. Yeah, you see him and you're definitely like, oh, hey, it's that guy. He's awesome. Oh, yeah, definitely. Man, that guy was jacked. He's badass. Yeah. All right, so let's move on to facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about to live and die in L.A.? Here's a little tidbit for you, folks. During the opening, when Eric Masters, a.k.a. Rick Masters, Willem Dafoe, is printing money, the film crew was actually creating counterfeit bills. A convicted counterfeiter was on set showing them how it's done. They were filming out in the desert, and Dafoe said that every time a helicopter flew over the building, they were sure it was the police coming to arrest them all. Hilarious. Yeah, I saw they said any shot where it's not Masters, that was the actual counterfeiter doing that. Just so it looked more authentic because he would know how to do it better than Willem Dafoe would do it. So I thought that was kind yeah. of interesting. Um, so the prison scenes were shot in the San Luis Obispo Penitentiary. And, of course, 
real prison inmates were used as extras. Oh, yeah. I'd read that. Always get those inmates to be in those prison films. Scary stuff. I'm going to follow up my first little bit of trivia by saying, despite the crew's best efforts, some of the counterfeit bills that were made for this film actually got into circulation. (laughs) The bill's quality was very, very good. But the Treasury seal on the counterfeits used the letter X, which is not a valid Federal Reserve Bank letter. The Secret Service picked up X bills for quite a while after filming wrapped. Cool. Uh, so this is interesting. Uh, so the real artist who created uh, Master's paintings was named Rainer Fetting, and he was a young German modern expressionist. The painting that was used in the beginning of the movie that was burned, that was actually a very expensive work of art of his, because if he had sold that, he would have made a ton of money. Uh, but he does make a cameo in the film. So he plays the priest <sighs> when Chance and Vukovic are surveilling Waxman's right. office. I thought that was kind That's of cool. funny. That, and I was going to look him up for a possible, hey, it's that actor, and I didn't get around to it. It's like, who's the priest who has the two lines? Hey, it's that artist. Oh, it's actually, yeah. yeah, he's the artist. That's great. Uh, speaking of our mutual favorite scene, of course, which is the, the car chase, the car chase sequence took six weeks to shoot. It was the last thing shot, apparently, so that if anything happened to the principal actors, the filmmakers would at least have the bulk of their movie completed without having to replace anybody. Yes. And it caused the movie to go over $1 million over budget because of all that. Now they didn't shoot for six weeks straight. Mind you, it was, it took them six weeks plan and shoot it. I think it was like a four hour blocks in certain days that they could get the traffic to close off. But by the time it was all finished, it, it took over the course of six weeks. Just so people understand that it wasn't. Got six it. Weeks Thanks shooting. for clarifying. Uh, I've got a couple other tidbits regarding that, how they shot that. Did you want to get into that? No, go ahead. That's all you. Yeah, that freeway car chase was filmed. This is the the portion that was on the freeway where they're going down the wrong way. Well, that was filmed with the traffic flowing backwards. This is awesome. I (laughs) never would have known. Just so smart. They did it so well. Well, Chanson Vukovic appear to be driving against traffic, they are, in fact, going in the proper direction. Yeah, and I read that he wanted on that side of the road because the background looked better. That's great. Oh, well, all of it looks freaking awesome. Yeah, it does. Oh, yeah, so I guess there was... They had to shoot another ending for the film because uh, NGM was a little worried that William Peterson dies... With 10 minutes left, and, you know, they're afraid audiences were going to like that. So they reshot it with Vukovic getting shot, but he doesn't get killed. He survives, and they end up catching Masters. But then, because of all the shit they went through to get Masters, they get transferred to Alaska. And their superior takes credit for catching Masters, and that's kind of how the movie ends. Which, I see why they didn't use that. Now, maybe you can clarify this tidbit for me, because according to IMDb, this is a legend. One Hollywood legend holds that Michael Mann sued William Freakin for plagiarism over this film. He accused Freakin of stealing the entire concept of Miami Vice in 84 and uh, ended up losing the lawsuit. However, Freakin himself has said, Michael Mann and I have been good friends for 30 years. Nothing like this ever happened. I tried to look up whether or not this was real, and I couldn't really get a definitive answer. I 
may have not been looking in the right spot. Did you read anything? I would have thought if that was true, we definitely would have found something else. So I think I agree with Freakin's statement. Because they were friends. for a, a, They've been friends. They were friends originally before this film because they're both Chicago guys. They came out of Chicago as well. So yeah. a lot of these actors, there's a lot of Chicago connections mm-hmm. in this movie uh, with the actors and creators' backgrounds. Yeah, and I mean, you and I both said it. We we feel like it's got a little bit of Miami Vice flavor to it, but no, I don't. Think, yeah. I don't think a lawsuit happened. I don't know. To be honest, I agree. I think it's BS. Uh, did you have any more facts and or trivia? No, that was it for me. Uh, I'll throw this last one in then, since uh, I'm not a fan of this score. Okay. I've read this on IMDb. Take it or leave it. Miles Davis was approached by the producers to compose the score for the film. But due to a busy schedule, he turned down the offer. And the source of this information supposedly is a book called So What? The Life of Miles Davis. And although the film isn't identified by its title, it certainly matches with the description of, of being a film directed by William Friedkin in 1985. Crazy, huh? Miles Davis doing in this Damn. score? Damn. I know. Damn you, Miles Davis. That could have been cool. I know. I agree with this. I did not like the score in this at all. I didn't even... I don't even not a big fan of the title song either. Look, again, I love Wang Chung for the couple of big hits that they had, and they were they got a ton of radio play, and it's just a lot yeah. of fun to listen to if you're in the right mood, in the right setting. And I appreciate the 80s synth sound, speaking of Miami Vice. And if it were done properly, it could have been great mm-hmm. for this movie, but then probably would have even been more accused of plagiarizing Miami Vice. But... You could name a bunch of composers that it could have done a great score. Yeah, you just listen to it and like, uh, yeah, yeah, that could be something a little better. All right, so let's move on to box office. Um, to Live and Die in L.A. was released on November 1st, 1985. On an estimated budget of $8 million, it grossed $17.3 million domestically. It debuted number two at the box office behind Death Wish 3, which was also released the same day. It stayed in the top 10 for another four weeks. It was the 49th highest grossing movie in the United States in 1985. So moving on to reviews. When growing up in the early 80s, we would watch at the movies with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming movies. Their review is missing. No clips from the October 26, 1985 episode can be found online. However, I did find Ebert's review for the film, and he gave it four stars, saying, To Live and Die in L.A. seems to know a lot about counterfeiting and also about the interior policies of the secret service. The film isn't just about cops and robbers, but about two systems of doing business and how one of the systems finds a way to change itself in order to defeat the other. That's interesting. So was the chase. Rotten Tomatoes gave it a tomato meter score of 85% and has an IMDB rating of 7.3. So that takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about To Live and Die in L.A.? I had some additional thoughts about William Peterson's wardrobe as Richard Chance. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Okay. In the bar scene after he does his little bungee jump or base jump off the bridge. What was up with the blue scarf over the yellow? What looked like kind of like a Pittsburgh Steelers jersey. And he's wearing jeans and cowboy boots. I don't know what was going on with the get up there. Yeah, yeah, he wears what, that jersey. Is, twice. is that a Steelers jersey? What is that jersey? Uh, please let us know what what uh, team. That's that, what it seems I like. I couldn't it. figure it out, but it wasn't Los Angeles, so I was confused. Later on, when he goes to visit Cody in jail, 
to propose getting him out of jail. Uh, he's wearing a light beige sweater tucked into beige corduroys. I got confused. Like, I understand it's the 80s, but there's some just weird wardrobe choices for Peterson. I was going to, like, he, I don't know. He wears it well. I mean, he sells it, I guess. I just was going to give another shout out my, uh, to the excellent squib work in this. I thought the uh, the makeup effects were excellent in this. Oh, yeah. Because it looks realistic, man. It's bothersome. <laughs> the gunshots are mm-hmm. freaking brutal. But uh, I definitely have some, uh, just a few questions. How about you, Bill Bant? I cannot believe we went through this whole pod and not mention Dean Stockwell. Oh, yeah. Sure. He played Bob Grimes. So he basically played Master's lawyer, but he was also kind of giving legal advice to Vukovic. And Vukovic was kind of spilling the beans to him about everything that Chance was doing. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Grimes kind of knew Masters, you know, hey, he knows he's a criminal and he's trying to help with not helping. So I thought that was kind of an interesting character. And it's just kind of cool. To Always see good to see him. Stockwell, so. Another really likable actor. Yeah. All right, beat him. So he's not, I mean, he's not in it for very long, maybe about five right. minutes total. Yeah, I thought it was actually, but, to be honest, a little underused. That would have been a great character fleshed out if they did, it was, yeah. if it was a series. Yeah, some questionable morality from his character. I just think of Quantum Leap every time I see him. Oh, yeah, of course. All right, so uh, you got some questions? Yeah, here's a question. How did you feel about the casting of John Pankow as Vukovic? Did he work for you in this movie? I'm, I'm kind of on the fence with him. I, I think he's a likable and obviously talented actor. His performance was fine. It was just, is he right for this part? And then it's kind of like, maybe it's the end is a little bit jarring for me, his transformation, because we do see him and his arc as he kind of goes to the dark side, so to speak. And he's picking up. Right. It's a lot more quicker. All of a sudden, after the finale, when he kills Rick Masters, he then shows up at Ruth's house and he's completed his transformation. In effect, has become Richard Chance. He's now also this kind of son of a bitch. He's like a, a cop that's turned bad in a way and is wearing the leather jacket and the jeans and the sunglasses. And his look is now completely changed. He's now emulating Richard Chance. It was like, this feels weird. Maybe from having a near-death experience. I don't know. Because I recognized John Pankow, but I couldn't think of what he was in. And then I was like, oh, yeah, he's mad about you. So he's more mm-hmm. known for his comedic chops than doing serious roles. Yeah, I was, I was, I was okay, okay with him, too. but I see what you're saying. Uh, again, he's a good actor. He just has such a kind of a mm-hmm. character look and vibe about him. Uh, just just question. I don't want to take anything away from John Pankow. He, you know, yeah, he did a great question. job. No, but I, I see what you're saying in that question. What questions do you have? Okay. So what did you think that Ruth did that forced him to be an informant for Chance? I couldn't think of what yeah, good question. she would have done that would have put her in that situation. I'm like, all right, she's not like a prostitute. No, but she's definitely under his thumb. Right. It was. It's not bad enough that she needs to be serving time in jail, but she's on parole. But I didn't feel like she was not like a – she. Some counter, I don't know. How does she get all these? Yeah, she's because she is definitely connected. She's getting information from different sources, which is weird because she works at well, we see her work at a strip club. That's the only time we really see her. I had no idea. I'm like, all right, well, what did you do? Yeah, you can only theorize, of course. I would like to know. 
obviously wasn't that bad. I don't believe she killed anybody, but she was probably, yeah, I'm assuming, uh, like, yeah, I, I, my my mind goes towards something involving money, something fraudulent. Yeah. Some sort of scam fraud or, or money laundering or something that had to do with much, much, much money. I don't know. It's a good question. If anybody has any thoughts, let us know. <laughs> Tweet us, email us. Absolutely. Please communicate with us. Hey, man, I'm going to rattle off some gritty L.A.-based cop detective crime movies. We've got okay. Live and Die in L.A. We've got The Last Boy Scout. We've got Heat. We've got End of Watch, L.A. Confidential, Gangster Squad, Mulholland Falls, Training Day, Lethal Weapon, and Chinatown. Hey, do you have a favorite? That's it. I'm not going to ask you to rank them Ooh. or what's your favorite out of those, but you know, what, or what you think is the best of those films. Or do you have a favorite LA based crime movie? Okay. So if all, if all those movies were put in front of me, I'd probably pop in lethal weapon first. Right. Right. Yeah. Not saying it's the best movie. Maybe the best one would be Chinatown. Then maybe LA confidential and to watch I was, a, that was, was pretty cool. So those, yeah, those four jump out. Yeah, great call. I think, uh, I believe Chinatown was ranked number one on the list that I had seen online. And I'm right there with you. So partial to Lethal Weapon and then probably LA Confidential, which I think is as close as you can get to a perfect film. But I don't know, man. Yeah, LA Confidential had a lot of oh shit moments. That's just such a wonderfully written movie. And uh, I don't know, part of me, the training Mm -hmm. days, it's kind of tough. Training day, that's that's one I'll watch over and over again. I've watched that more than a few times. Yeah, I'm partial to Lethal Weapon. And I did not put mm-hmm. uh, Beverly Hills Cop on the list, only because I don't regard that as a kind of like a gritty L.A. crime drama. It's a little bit leaning towards the lighter side no, of things. No, no, I mean, no. there's some grit in I agree. it. And definitely some violence, yeah. etc. But part comedy. So. Alright, you know, we mentioned that William Friedkin directed this movie. Alright, Jason. Exorcist or French Connection? What do you like better? Between The Exorcist and The French Connection? If I had to choose, yes. What do I think is better? Um, I probably really need to see French Connection again. I haven't seen it in so long, but I have seen it. So I, you know, I'm biased. I'm just recency biased because I've seen The Exorcist many more times, but also more recently. That movie is just really disturbing. I understand that some of the effects don't hold up anymore, but it's still it. it registers with something deep down inside that's upsetting for me. I don't know. What, what's your call on that? I'm going French Connection. I know Exorcist is considered a horror classic, probably one of the best of all time. And I'm Catholic too, so, you know, I'm supposed to believe that kind of stuff. But no, I've, I yeah. fucking love yeah. French Connection. I need to go back. I got to watch it again. I mean, it's one of the, there's no wrong answer. Hey, that's all Bill, I say. the power of Christ compels you. Yes. <laughs> Here's my last question. I read this somewhere in my scrolling through everything on the world wide web the interweb i read somewhere that ruth actually knew that ling the quote-unquote chinaman was an undercover agent and she actually set chance up to get busted so that she would be free of him that would make sense that's my question is do you buy that theory yes i would because she knows he needs thirty thousand dollars for front money did she know that though he probably told her. Yeah. I'm I'm just going based on on surface knowledge of what we see in the film and what we hear between the two of them. I don't think she did set him up just because I don't think she knew enough to set him up. How would she know that he was going to rob 
Because I don't think she knows that he's going to... Oh, no, well, no, she does. That's after she tells him about the deal. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying she necessarily mm-hmm. did it in the movie. I'm just saying, does the theory okay, make sense? I got you. I got you. I agree yes. With that. The theory makes saying. sense. The way I read it in the research, whomever wrote it yeah. was saying that's exa- that is what happened. And I was like, no, I don't think that's what happened. But I thought it was a cool idea. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any more questions for me? No, I think I'm good. You are good, Bill. Thanks. So let's, uh, let's, let's give this movie a rating. Okay. So on a scale of one to five counterfeit bills, five being the highest, what do you give to live and die in L.A.? I'm going to give it a solid four counterfeit bills. That's my rating. Four out of five. I agree. Four counterfeit right bills. Yep. Yeah, I was glad we picked this one out. I really did not remember most of this movie. And I was like, why have I not watched this forever? Like I said in the beginning. So recommend it. Unfortunately, like I said, it's nowhere yeah, in streaming weird. right now. Hopefully it will be soon. If you know someone with a copy, borrow it, watch it. It'll, it'll be worth the two hours. And you'll say the same thing. They should make a TV show. Yeah, totally agree, man. I, I yeah, yeah. I just I, I want to see the further adventures of the Secret Service <laughs> division. It's a cool uh, little aspect of law enforcement, man. That I, I really enjoyed, and I would enjoy further exploration. You know, I, I was being a little nitpicky, and I have issues from a creative standpoint with some of the character definition, possibly, and like especially the cold open of this film and some of the Miami Vice uh, elements of this. But after, I mean, this movie. I just thought it was really effective. I still have a lasting feeling from this. I don't know if it's a good feeling, but the movie had an impact. So four out of five counterfeit bills. All right. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. As always, a quick request from us here at the All 80s Movies Podcast. Please take the time to subscribe. Give us a review and rate us. Those subscribes and reviews really help us continue producing the show. If you want to reach out, you can reach us at all80smoviespodcast at gmail.com. Please send us your feedback, questions, movies you want us to cover, or, of course, recipes to share. You can follow us on Facebook Meta at all80smoviespodcast or tweet us at podcastall80s. Next week, we'll be releasing a mini-sode on movie sidekicks, so please check that one out. Until then, have a totally great week, everyone. Hill, stars the eyes of God. The stars are God's eyes. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now. 